Colossians chapter 3, Paul writing to the church in Colossae, these churches that Paul had, uh, I don't know that Paul had necessarily had a firsthand uh, experience in Colossae, but the men that he trained in Ephesus at the school of Tyrannus wound up being the men that went to places like the city of Colossae and started this church. And Paul writes to them, continuing to do what he has already described in Acts chapter 20, proclaiming to them the whole counsel of God. When the scripture says that we are to go and to make disciples of all nations, that does not mean that we go and get them to pray a prayer or sign a card and then we go home. We want to get started and move them in progression toward maturity in Christ. And what Paul is outlining here in Colossians chapter 3 is right in line with that, giving us a glimpse into the, the heart of this man and the heart of the gospel that God is proclaiming through his men, through his apostles, what has been recorded for us. And he's talking about the difference between the old you and the new you, if you are indeed in Christ. Therefore, he says, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also lay aside, lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you put off the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all. And in all, so as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against another, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 
And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Father, we do indeed give you thanks and praise this day. And we give you this praise and this thanks in the name of our only Savior, your only begotten Son that has become the Savior of your people. The only one that could live the life that we need. The only one that could ever have died the death that could pay for our sin debt and provide us with a righteousness that you will accept for eternity. It is in his name that we are here. It is for his glory that we are here to sing the praise and to proclaim the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you will be honored in this place in, in what is proclaimed in, in accuracy and in soundness. And we pray that you will be honored in this place by what is received in humility and grace. So that you will accomplish all that you desire here. That we might honor you to the utmost. And Father, we pray it with great joy. Because our Lord Jesus Christ has opened the gates of heaven to us that are his people. That we might fellowship with you in the heavenlies. That we might have our prayers always attended to. That we might have our agonies always comforted. That we might have our anxieties and, and difficulties always tenderly tended to by our doting Father. So we pray all of this in the name that is above every name. The name that has not merely secured our eternity sometime in the future. But the name of the one that has given us the right here and now to be called the children of God. And to approach you as our Abba. It is in the name of our only begotten Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. The gospel that we proclaim, friends, is not the gospel that the world has concocted. The good news that we proclaim is not good news like any other. The good news that we proclaim is that there is a God in heaven, and he is holy, and he is very angry at sin. But he is a God who has come up with a remedy and he saves repentant sinners. Amen. The only people that God cannot save are those that will not come to him in repentance and faith. And that's a larger list than it should be. But that is what is open to you and I and is open to the world. It is the gospel that we proclaim as we go out as, as his disciple makers. And we proclaim it in our homes. And he has given us his gospel in his word. And it is now time for you and I to step into that Word of the Living God, so open your copy of the Word of God with me and meet me in John chapter 3, Gospel of John <clears throat> chapter 3. We uh, began last week looking at the concluding words from the 
mouth and ministry of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer or however you would refer to him. He was the forerunner of Christ. These are the Apostle John's spirit-inspired last recorded words of John the Baptist, and he is doing what he was sent to do even in these last words. As Dr. Lawson says very often, last words should be lasting words, and the last recorded words of John the Baptist are indeed lasting words for you and I. And it is a, a tremendous benefit for you and I to, to be able to look into, into this man's heart and into his ministry. Let us uh, read together. Beginning in verse 22, we will read through verse 30, and then we will ask the Creator's intervention on our time today to make it profitable for you and I and honorable to Him that this day will be what He has intended it to be. In verse 22, John records, After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Father, as we open your word together, as we have met on this Lord's Day for the preaching of the word, we are immediately drawn to the recognition that we are desperately in need of your instruction and your intervention, your provision of Minds to understand, spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, a spiritually pliable heart to respond to your truth. Father, we would readily recognize and, and immediately proclaim that we are desperately in need of you for our eternal provision once we come to the end of life, but Lord, we would be Sadly mistaken if we did not immediately recognize our desperate need for you in every moment of life and certainly as we come to the living and breathing word of the living God. 
This word that is sharper than any two-edged sword that is able to discern between the thoughts and intentions of a man's heart. Who were we to think that we could grasp it on our own? But we are not helpless. And we are not hopeless. For you are our help. And you are our hope. And we petition you this day, at this time, at this moment, to guide us through your truth. That it might honor you in its delivery and its reception. And that it might benefit your people. And we might leave here better suited to accomplish what you have called us to do and to be as your people. And we pray it in our ever-living Savior's all-sufficient name. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We are looking into the ministry philosophy of John the Baptist. What made this man tick? Knowing what makes great men tick is a profit to us in life. And knowing what makes God's men and God's servants tick, as it were, is of great benefit to you and I. What is their perspective? What was, what was John the Baptist's ministry perspective? What drove him? What was the overarching compulsion and expectation? What was he driving at? What was he pursuing? He tells us here very clearly in this passage that John the disciple has recorded for us. And it, it, it points to us what is to be the, the minister's philosophy of service to the Lord in the church and out of the church. We are all called to minister for the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given apostles and prophets and pastor teachers to equip the church for the work of ministry. We are all indeed called by God into his kingdom. And as such, we are the servants and the ministers of that kingdom. And we are to render service to that king, those that have been been given the expectation of executing the command of another, and that other is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we began last week looking at this new arrangement that sees a separation. It's a new arrangement for John the Baptist. It is a separation from, from him having been at the forefront of, of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as the forerunner. There is now a separation between he and Christ and, and John is fading into the secondary. He has been the primary because he's been the only. And now that Christ has come on the scene and has been announced, he is taking that, that front and center portion of the stage. And John is, has been separated and he is fading into the periphery. And because of that, we see an old adversary has reared its ugly head. An adversary of competition. Competition rooted in envy. We see that, that Jesus has moved into the Judean countryside and he is remaining there, rubbing shoulders with these men. He spent much time there. They, they were able to do the physical act of the baptizing, but they were not yet prepared to be those that would proclaim the message of repentance and the message of the kingdom. He is training and preparing them for that. And he is there with them in the Judean countryside, preparing them and 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 instructing them, encouraging them, showing them. Can you imagine being mentored by the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh? These men had that opportunity, and it was, it was necessary for them and necessary for you and I. 
And John is, is further north, removed from the, the, the big city, removed from the, the, the place of prominence and the, the place of great influence. He is still working. And as we will see in, in a few minutes, that says much about this man. And, and he's a tremendous example for you and I. And there was an intensity to his preaching, a fervency there. As, as he is, it says that he is not yet in prison. He will be imprisoned for preaching. That is a scary thought for many, but John the Baptist was, in his fervency, he never waned. We move from that new arrangement in verses 22 to 24 to an old adversary that rears its head in verses 25 and 26. We see this discussion between the this subversive plot and this discussion between uh, a, a Jew and John's disciples over purification and asking, well, well, if we need to be purified, is it your baptism or is it the baptism of this Jesus guy who is still down in the Judean countryside? And it, it creates conflict. And, and these, these, because they're, they're the same ministry in two different components, one in Anon near Salim and one in, in the Judean countryside, they take advantage of that and attempt to divide and conquer. And, and we see this envious, sinful portrayal as they come to John the Baptist with, with flattery and contempt. They come to him with flattery. Oh, Rabbi, the one to whom that you that was with you across the Jordan, the one that was down there with you, now he's baptizing. The one that you announced, the one that you brought onto the scene, they should have answered their own question in just saying that, as John is going to point out as he responds to them in verse 28. The one that you bore witness to, they don't even use Jesus' name. There's contempt for Jesus, there is, there's flattery toward John, they are they are wanting to, to see themselves and, and, and the one that they support. We want our team to be the best team. And they are following this, this envious competition. And then the sensational pageantry at the end of verse 26. And all are going to him. Well, if everybody's going to him, who are you having this argument with? And who are you baptizing? What do you, what, who's everybody? It's like that, that ubiquitous them or they well you know they say well, who's they what do you well they say on facebook who's the they on facebook what are you talking about your kids would come home from school and say oh but mom i have to do this because everybody else is doing it what do you mean everybody else who's everybody same concept here all are going to him and then we see the heart of the baptist come out we see the heart of the baptizer come out in a noble answer he gives a noble answer to this old adversary that has has taken the opportunity to rear its head under this new arrangement. And this noble answer can be defined in one word, and it is the word exaltation. He is going to exalt another. We read last week in our scripture reading from Exodus chapter 11, where Joshua's protest comes to Moses and said, Moses, them two clowns are down in the, out in the camp prophesying. You need to do something about it. And Moses said, I wish and I pray that one day all of God's people will have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them and prophesy the glories of God. And friends, that was answered in part on the day of Pentecost. That was answered in part on the day that you and I gave our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and we indeed were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
But that was Moses' perspective. And, and John the Baptist here is, is channeling that same act of humility. It says that Moses was the meekest man on the planet. Moses' humility was a divine humility. And John the Baptist, as fiery a preacher as this man was, he had a tender humility toward the glory of his God. It's been said of some preachers that they are much nicer in person than they are in the pulpit. John the Baptist would have been one of those. Moses would have been one of those. What John the Baptist is going to have to say here in this noble answer, this exaltation of another that he uses as he answers this this antagonist that has come to him, is the defining motive for humility. It is the defining motive for contentment. How many of you are content where you are today? Don't raise your hand. You're an American. And you're a person incarcerated in flesh that is never satisfied. The defining motive for humility and contentment. John answers beginning with a universal principle in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This is a universal principle. I heard a politician about six or seven years ago, maybe more, maybe ten years ago, stand up in a public place and say, if you have a business, if you have some successful occupation in your life, you didn't do that. Someone else did that for you. And every entrepreneur and every hardworking businessman, every farmer that, that I've ever known, every man that's ever run a business for himself bristles at that idea because you know what you have to do and, and, and how you have to sacrifice and scrimp and, and scrap and, and, and save and work and slave over this. And to have a government official stand up and say, you didn't do that, someone else did that for you. What this government official meant He was the president at the time. What he meant was you didn't do that. The government did that for you. Now, to most politicians, government is God. That's why we have so much trouble with them, because they they think that government is God. And we believe that the God that is God wrote this book. And our government is at odds with it at every point it can possibly be anymore. What John the Baptist says here is that Not that the government built a road or gave you a tax break. What he says here is that you cannot receive one thing unless it is given to you from heaven. Not a gift, a talent, a capacity, not an opportunity, not a position at work, not an ability that you have to do things. Solomon said, do you see a man who is great at what he does, he will stand before kings and not before normal men. You see a man who is a great artisan, a great craftsman, a man who, is, who has a great capacity and ability, he will rise above other people. But even he does not have an ability that was not given to him. Well, I was born with it. 
right you were. What did you do to be born? There is no calling. There is nothing in your life that you and I can claim credit for outside of the reality and the fact that the Almighty has given it to us. That is where John the Baptist begins here today. Begins in, in this answer. This universal principle. John Philip says John the Baptist was free from that dark spirit of professional jealousy which seizes the souls of some preachers when they contemplate someone in the ministry who seems to be having more success than they. MacArthur says God had sovereignly granted John the Baptist his ministry. If God now chose to change or end that ministry... John was content. Everything among God's servants, including popular ministry, is a gracious gift from God, not something to which a person is entitled. Therefore, there is no place for jealousy, as John's self-effacing reply indicated. I've often wondered why preachers move from place to place, why they go from one church to another, and they want to move up. I'm using air quotes, up, want to move up in the ministry. Why? You don't deserve where you are now. H.B. Charles, some of you will be familiar with him. He grew up in Southern California. His dad was the preacher. His dad died when he was 17. The church called him at 17 to pastor the church. Now, as, as the providence of God would, would have it, he smiled upon that church. And H.B. Charles developed into a fantastic Phenomenal preacher. A church in Jacksonville, Florida, on the other end of the United States, called H.B. Charles and said, our elders met and we feel God is calling us to call, telling us to call you as the pastor of this church. Big church, Jacksonville, Florida. Big step up, if you want to call it. And he said, God's not calling me there. God's called me right here. And he wrestled with it until his wife said, listen, maybe God's not calling you there. But if he is, you at least better go and, 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 and check this thing out. And today, you know of H.B. Charles, those of you who do, because of, of God moving in that way. But friends, we're going to get to heaven. And there are going to be some people that are standing so close to Jesus that all you can see is the back of their head. And those people are going to be people that belong to little tiny hamlet churches that no one even remembers. The men and the women that, that led and served those churches. We're in America. Success means money. Success means numbers. Preachers get together and ask questions like, how many are you running? Have no idea. Have no idea. Song service, I go to the back sometimes. I stand back there and I, I just... I, I look out here and I pray for some of you. I never count because I don't care. If the only people that show up on Sunday are my family, we're going to have church. Now, I really want all of y'all to keep coming. Don't, don't, don't think you're getting out of nothing here, but we're here for the Lord's glory, not for our own. And John the Baptist is the Exhibit A in, in, in that reality. 
This verse drips with the honey of grace. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Do you know what you deserve? Do you know what you've earned in this life? We look around and say, well, I had this because I earned it. We use those words in a conversation with a guy recently. We were looking at, at, at something he had. I said, look, man, I said, you've worked hard. You, you've earned this. You, you really have enjoyed it. Enjoy it. This is a pretty fantastic thing you've got going here. And I meant that. But when we come to the idea of the creator, do you, do you realize what you have earned, what you deserve from him? I'll give you a key, a little hint. You'll never come to grips with what you deserve from God as long as you look around you. Because you can always find somebody worse or that deserves it less. When we receive anything positive, anything good from the Creator, it is all an act of grace. The unmerited favor of God. Because we could compile a very long list of what we deserve from God, what we have earned, and every one of them would be negative. But we serve a gracious God who gives his very best to the undeserving. Paul said that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This verse drips with honey. Sovereign grace is God's giving to the undeserving. John's anointing to be a voice crying in the wilderness was not from himself but from God. His message of repentance to prepare the way of the Lord was also not his message but was from God, given from heaven, which means it was given from God. And it is in, this verb is in the perfect tense, which speaks of something having been given at some point with a continuing effect. It has been given, and it's been given with an expectation and a responsibility for the future. John's point is that all blessing and ministry are from God, which should put a stop to all competition. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians is an epistle, and you would be right to look at the epistles as the commentaries on the gospel. And from that perspective, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is giving us some commentary on the gospel and some commentary on this particular verse, this particular passage in John chapter 3. Now, whether Paul had this necessarily in mind as he wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is certainly debatable. I'm not saying that it was, but the principle applies. God's principles always come out in the writings of his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks to this idea of competition. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, jealousy and strife among you, jealousy and strife in the church, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? 
For one says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants or ministers through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, and growth happened. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He who plants, he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages, for we are God's fellow workers in God's field. You know what winds up happening? We all wind up with a favorite preacher. Now, in this room, you're all pretty safe because I know all your favorite preacher is me. What was that? My wife's back there saying, I don't know what ain't true. We can all have a favorite preacher. One of my favorite preachers growing up was Adrian Rogers. I just uh, felt like I could finish his sentences. Great preacher. John MacArthur. Steve Lawson. H.B. Charles. There are sound preachers that, that we could just go down a list, and all of us, well, yeah, I, really, I really like this preacher. Good. If he is a, a spirit-called, God-blessed preacher, listen to what he has to say when he, un, when he unlocks this word, when he unleashes this word in your life. But remember this, he's only an instrument, and the glory goes to God. And it's not because of the, the imminent physical and, and intellectual gifts of the man, because let's face it, there are intellectually gifted and and um, men of false religion the world over that could run intellectual circles around even the greatest servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about what capacity you have or capacity I have. It's not about the capacity. It's about the one who is energizing it. And he is the one who causes the growth that Paul refers to here. And he is the one that receives all of the glory. Paul's not done. Chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. This is how one should regard us. Now, I go to places and, and get into kind of public situations, and people find out I'm a preacher, they start acting funny. Oh, I didn't know preacher. Whoa. Went to the post office again this week. Lady sees me, I'm in line. Oh, hey, Rev, what can I do for you today? Man, I just want to mail a letter. Fortunately, I haven't run into any of you at the store yet because I know what's coming. If I see Matt Shera at the store, he will not see me if I see him first. I'm kidding. He yell it, yeah. Paul was an apostle. Paul was a capital A apostle. Paul told the Corinthians that the works of an apostle were clearly manifested and, and clearly depicted in front of you. You know that I have this apostolic anointing of God on my life and on this ministry, woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. This is how one should regard us. 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul writing, as servants, or your 
your translation may say slaves. That's more accurate. As slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Not a real high uh, position on the totem pole of life to be a, a slave and a steward. I'm a bus boy. I'm a bond slave. Moreover, it is required of servants that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, because he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart, that each one will receive his commendation from God. You know what else they'll receive? Not condemnation, they'll receive the other end of that. They may receive some condemnation. Because you we're going to get to heaven and find out that a lot of people did a lot of good things on the outside with rotten hearts on the inside. And that's a word of warning to all of us all of the time. He continues, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another, in favor of one against another. Paul said, don't have favorites. Don't have favorite servants of God. Don't see yourself as, as more or less. Understand that you are in a position that you were given by God. I have applied these things to us for your benefit, that you may, know, you may learn by us not to go beyond what it is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? Is there a difference in your life today than there used to be? I hope so. If you're a follower of Christ, I hope today is different than yesterday was for you. I hope tomorrow is better than today as we're being molded and shaped into the image of Christ. Then Paul asked this question, same thing, the, the, the same thing that John the Baptist had to say in, in John 3. What do you have that you did not receive? We talk about, you've never seen a hearse, following by, uh, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Can't take it with you when you go. You know what else? You didn't bring anything with you when you got here. If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? John the Baptist understood that clearly. Our gifts and opportunities come from God and he alone must get the glory. He says no one can receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. It means to receive or accept something for which the initiative rests in the giver. It's not even the idea that we go and ask God for it. We look around and, listen, I didn't go, I was never on my knees when Liz and I were first married asking God to make me a preacher. I was not. Oh, Lord, would you give me that pulpit? Never, ever did I do that. I've never done that. Never done it. I, can't, I told the Sunday school class this morning, when, when you have a compulsion on your life, I remember as, as, as a child, I was, not, I was not walking with the Lord and I knew it. I was under great conviction and, and consternation and the Holy Spirit of God and that still small voice was saying, son, you need to repent. You need to turn from this and turn back to me. You cannot continue to live this way. And you know what my mind would tell me? 
Man, if I repent, he's going to send me to Africa as a missionary, and I don't want to do that. And, the, and, and the, the flesh of my mind would say he's going to send you to Africa as a missionary to punish you for ever being in disobedience to him. That's silly. That's absurd. God wants to send me to Africa. You know the first thing he's going to do? He's going to give me an overwhelming desire to be there where I will not be satisfied with anything outside of that. Told him in the Sunday school class, if God wants you to be a missionary to New Guinea, no one will be able to keep you out of New Guinea. You will be consumed with that. You don't need the preacher to tell you and, and pound you on the head and you need to do No, you don't need me to do that. Because the only thing I really can do in that regard is to get you to do what I want. But to get you to do what God wants, the Holy Spirit of God does not need my help to do that. You have this book and him indwelling you, you're going to be compelled to, to pr pursue what he has for you. There came a day that I had to go and talk to the preacher and I said, There's, I can't shake this. But I'm terrified to say I think God's called me to preach because it's such a high and, and, and rigorous calling. I don't want to undertake this without the, the most gravity that I can apply to it. And he would not leave me alone. And I don't use the expression that I surrendered to preach because it wasn't reluctant. I answered the call to preach. In December of 2004. It was something that, that rested upon me that, that God had given out of his desire to accomplish his purposes for his glory. The Apostle James knew this very well. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or... Shifting shadow. Peter says we've all received uh, spiritual gifts in, in chapter 4 of his first epistle. And if we're going to use these gifts, we use them for the glory of God because they are given to us from him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Spurgeon looks at this verse and he says the repetition of the words not unto us would seem to indicate a very serious desire to renounce any glory which might be at any time be proudly appropriated to ourselves. And it also sets forth the vehemence of their wish that God would at any cost to them magnify his own name. At any cost to me magnify your own name. They loathed the idea of seeking their own glory and rejected the thought with the utmost detestation again and again, disclaiming any self-glorifying motive in their supplication. Nothing can be given. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That is a universal principle. What, what position, what opportunity... What provision do you have in your life? What, what abilities? What, what capacity? Some of you people have just tremendous ability to, to do stuff. Some of you guys, your wife asks you to do something, you can just go and do it. Okay, just come up with a way to do it. This guy, not so much. Now, I, I need to clarify. I'm pretty good at some stuff. 
You want to tear it down? I'm your guy. You want it in a bunch of little pieces this afternoon? Call me. I'm real inventive. You want it to look nice after? Uh, I'm going to need some time. And God has given some of you some really tremendous capacities to do things. He's given you that for his glory. And the majority of you use them to great extent in the church, and it is a great, great blessing to us, a great blessing to the Opelousas Bible Church. But even that was not something that you, you brought to bear on your own. It was, it was given to you from God. And the question is, why did he give you that capacity? Why does he give us opportunities? Why, why would he do that? For his glory and for our eternal good. That's the answer to that question. Why would he do that? For his glory and for our eternal good. For his glory in my life and in other people's life and for my eternal good, learning to use it in, in a capacity that brings him honor and glory. That's what John the Baptist understood. That's what you and I should first and foremost take from that universal principle. Then he outlines for these men an unmistakable position. He puts himself... He takes this universal principle and he uses it and applies it to himself and he makes unmistakable to everyone watching and listening and for you and I reading in posterity, he makes unmistakable the position that he holds. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now this is a, this is a, a, a a soft rebuke. This is like a velvet line wrecking ball to these men and what they've come to him. Rabbi, the one, the one that you was with you across the river, who, to whom you bore witness, he's baptizing. Uh, okay, fellas, you heard me bear witness. The question is in verse 26 is, well, what did he bear witness to? I bore witness and you heard me bear witness that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You're claiming to know what I bore witness to. Apply what I bore witness to. He is the Christ and not me. Then he gives an illustration, beginning in verse 29. I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. And he gives an illustration that needs a little explanation for you and I today because he speaks of the bridegroom and what would, by our standard today, be the best man. But the best man in a wedding today does not have to do what the bridegroom was, uh, the friend of the bridegroom is expected to do here. He's the friend of the bridegroom. It's a secondary position. His responsibility is to put the focus on another. His whole objective, as the friend of the bridegroom, his whole objective is the joy, satisfaction, and glory of another. There was another whom he serves. Verse 20, 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Who's the bride here? The church. The Old Testament, well, it, it, technically at this point, it was the, the, the people of God just in, in, because the church hasn't begun yet in John chapter 3. God referred to himself as the bride as the, the bridegroom in Israel as the bride. So they understand that the people of God are referred to as a bride and, and God being the bridegroom. He says the friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
There, there is a bride, there's the groom coming for the bride, but there is a friend of the bridegroom, or in our vernacular, the best man. Now, in our day and age, the best man has really one responsibility. Show up with the ring. Stand there in the tuxedo that I made you rent. On the X that the, the lady put for you to stand so you know what to do. Stand there. Smile the best you can for the pictures. And when the preacher says, may I have the rings, reach in your pocket, hand him the ring. That's your responsibility. Reach in your pocket, hand him the ring. That's the greatest job ever. All I got to do is reach in my pocket, hand him the ring. Right. And you're still going to mess it up, so practice. That's what the best man's responsibility is here today. In that day, the, the best man or the friend of the bridegroom, he had some responsibility. People today want to hire a wedding planner. You need a wedding planner. Actually, what you need is somebody that has an itinerary of what you want to do and tells everybody where to step on the day of the wedding because you're, everybody's brain is frazzled. Somebody's got to remind the bride, you've got that pretty dress on because you're walking down there and giving your life to that boy. All of that was put into the hands of the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom. A betrothal typically lasted around a year. The, the expectation was that the bridegroom was, was setting up a domicile and a place for him to live with his new bride and putting together what was going to be the wedding, uh, all that would, would go into a wedding. A Jewish wedding lasted from four to seven days. So he's making all of these preparations, and his right-hand guy, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, his responsibility was to plan, execute, and oversee the bridegroom's wishes. What do you want to have to do? What do you want to have to eat? Okay, well, well, we'll do all of this. I had to do all of that for my daughter's wedding. Most of that. It would have been great if Caden had one friend. When he says that the friend of the bridegroom has a responsibility and he rejoices to hear the groom, he's speaking of the end of that ceremony. He's put everything together. He's been in contact with the bride's family. Okay, this is the day that is set. This is where it is going to be. He's going to come. The bride is there. He comes to take the bride. They go and have the ceremony and then they begin their life. And all of this, there's been this great uh, amount of time and, and, and it comes in its culmination is this wedding ceremony that, as I said, would last sometimes four to seven days. And when the bridegroom arrives and he hears his voice, he comes in, he's thrilled because now I get to, I get to give all of this to him and get to, get to watch, watch the, the joy that he has in, in having all of, all of this ceremony and, and taking his bride. He is thrilled when he arrives and then he fades into the shadow. The wedding is not about the friend of the bridegroom. It's about the groom and the bride. And they're to take front, have front and center stage. It's all about the, the, the groom and the bride. And John the Baptist said, I am the friend of the bridegroom. This, this Christ, this anointed one that he refers to in, in verse 28, he is coming as the bridegroom to take the people of God as a bride. And my responsibility as the friend of the bridegroom was to prepare the way to plan and to execute all that and oversee all that his wishes. And when he arrives, I'm to fade into the back. You understand it in a wedding context. That is what is happening here. And then he says this. This joy of mine is now complete. 
a remarkable man. He has been the most popular man in 450 years in Israel. They haven't had a prophet for 450 years. They want a word from the Lord. They've got to go to a prophet. They've not had one. They all know that he's a prophet. That's why everybody's going out and, and taking this baptism of repentance because they're thinking now he's sent the prophet. Maybe this is Elijah. He told us he was going to send Elijah ahead of time, and maybe the time is now, and this is the guy, and they're all excited, and he's, he's Mr. Popular. So popular is he that Herod doesn't want to put him to death because the people think that he's a prophet. He looks at the arrival of Christ and his opportunity to announce him. Christ being glorified, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And announced he is here and put into a publicly elevated position for all to recognize. John says this completed his joy and mission. Now he can fade into the background. I'm tempted to use the word retire. But Americans have a very twisted idea of retirement. Retire and do what? Sit around the house and do everything Liz tells me to do? John the Baptist is now the friend of the bridegroom who has announced the bride the, the groom has come and he is fading into the background. But what do we see from this man? We see that he was energetically faithful to the end. He never cut slack. He never slowed down. He's still in Anon near Salim, or as some preachers say, Salim. I can't say. It's probably how you're supposed to say it, but it sounds like I'm saying slime, so I call it Salim. He's in no man's land. Jesus is down in the Judean countryside where the most of the people are, where the popularity is. And his ministry is, is exploding, and John's is fading into obscurity. But it didn't cause John to slow down one whit because he was not serving the people. He was serving God. And whatever God sent as a ministry for him, however successful it may seem to be, however tragic it may have seemed to be, it was all for the glory of God. That was John the Baptist's ministry philosophy. And it needs to be your philosophy and mine. Sometimes others will come along and they'll take over maybe something that we used to do and they kind of rise to, to the top in, in, in the, if, if there's some hierarchy in the church uh, as servants in the church and, and, and now they, they've kind of taken over what I used to do and kind of hurts our feelings sometimes. But remember what John the Baptist has set for us as an example. No one receives anything but what's given to him and if the Lord is glorified in it, then I'm happy. That's what I want. If the Lord is glorified, if the Lord is honored, and the church is benefited, then I'm happy. My joy is complete. That's the example that John set. But then verse 30. I almost feel like we should have started at verse 30 and worked our way back. Because this is such a mountain peak in Scripture. Such a high point. He gives a universal principle, declares an unmistakable position, and he outlines for you and I an unending prescription. This is the prescription for your life and mine as a believer in Jesus Christ. What he puts here, he puts into words what is the Christian life. 
your life as a believer lived out in this world, in front of the world, and under the, the gaze of the Almighty, this is what it should be. This is the definition. This is the description. This is the Christian life. The Lord Jesus Christ magnified, elevated, exalted, and honored in all of your life, everywhere in your life. This is not a small expectation. This is not a light idea that we can just kind of talk and give a, a few pithy statements and go on about our life and say, oh, wasn't that a wonderful thing? He must increase and I must decrease. He doesn't say should. He should decrease and you should. He should increase and you should decrease. And he doesn't say he's going to decrease and you increase. He doesn't say he might increase and you might decrease. The main principle here is that he must increase. And if that's going to happen, then the second half of that must be true. If Christ is going to increase in your life, and by absolute necessity, you must decrease. What did I say a few weeks ago? The, the, the you residue that is left in you must be swept away. And it is replaced with Christ-likeness. It means putting the old you and its tendencies. And let's face it, we come to Christ and walk with Christ for decades and the old you is still there. We're still wrestling with it. This means putting the old you and its tendencies and desires, putting that all away. And replacing the old you with Christ-likeness, which is the new nature that you have in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8 with me. We'll get a little better description of this in Paul's commentary on this particular idea, this commentary on this gospel idea. Romans chapter 8, not 1 Corinthians chapter 8, preacher. One of the most well-known verses in the scripture. Very, very often, if not most of the time, completely stripped of its context here, but we're going to take it in its context because we really want to look at verse 29. Romans 8, 28 and 29, and then we look at verse 30 and 31. And we know most of you know that I was run over by a tractor when I was a little boy. And to his credit, my daddy had put this, this verse in my head my whole life. I heard it all the time from him. And I watched that tractor drive away as I laid there in the dust and fertilizer and whatever else he was spreading. And I asked a question. I think I said it out loud. How is this going to be for my good? Not really in, in some doubting context, but because of what Paul begins, he says, we know. We know. It is an established fact that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God called you into his kingdom. He's called you into his kingdom for a purpose. And you've been called according to his purpose and everything that happens in the world he is allowing to happen and working and manipulating it for your good. And Paul says, we know this. Verse 
verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. How do we know that he's working all things for good? Because the omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful creator predestined those whom he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his son. What did he predestine you to? Not good looks. I mean, it just, it just kind of came to the territory for me. He didn't predestine you to be wealthy. He didn't predestine you to be happy. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. So what's the purpose? God's purpose in your life is that you would become more like Jesus Christ every day. And the first step in that is that he calls you into his kingdom, births you again from above, and you are now a co-heir with Christ, a co-heir of God, and you are in God's kingdom as an adopted child, and he is molding and shaping you and conforming you into the image of his son. Which means putting off the old you with its tendencies and desires and replacing the old you with Christ-likeness. Do you think that happens easily? Do you think it's always fun? The context in which the baptizer gives us this statement that he must increase and I must decrease is while he is being pushed to the side and forgotten. But he said, my joy is complete because the reason that I was sent here was to glorify him. And when he is glorified, then I am satisfied. And cross-stitched that on a pillow. When he is glorified, then I am satisfied. And it's not a question as to whether he'll do it. Look at verses 30. Uh, Look at the the rest of, of verse 29 and verse 30. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of these, all of these verbs are actions from one actor. And they're received by a recipient. It's not a co-labor. There's one actor, one recipient. The he, antecedent to he, is the creator. It says, those whom the creator predestined, the creator also called. Those whom the creator called, the creator also justified. And those whom the creator justified, he also glorified. If you're a believer here today... All but one of those is past tense. One of them is still in the future because you're not glorified yet. But it is so certain and undeniable that he speaks of it in the past tense. He will do it. He will do it. And that is what John would cling to. He must increase, I must decrease. Because in the end, he's going to bring more 
glory to himself and more satisfaction to me than I can even imagine because he is the one doing it. You say, well, then, preacher, that just means that I just get to rest and relax and, and slide on my merry way? No, it's not what I mean. You have your role and you have a responsibility. Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Fear and trembling, that's pretty strong language. Why are we in fear and trembling? Because God is at work in you. You understand that God is at work in you for his glory, for his good pleasure? Do you really want to interrupt that? Do you really want to be the one that stands in the way of that? You say, no, but... My spouse sure is. Oh, you don't understand, preacher. My in-laws, you just don't understand. Yeah, I got a spouse and some in-laws. I got a bunch of kids. I got a whole bunch of friends, and some of you aren't making it real easy for me, Andre. Work out your salvation. Not work for it. Not work it up. To work it out, you have a responsibility. And it's to be done with fear and trembling because we're serving another. And our responsibility is to see him increase. And to see who we are by nature decrease. Man, I got a lot of scripture left here. Lord, help me to edit it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. Paul says, this is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What were we taught? This is like basic gospel stuff, he says here. Assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt. You understand you were born corrupt and that your natural tendencies are corrupt. That's a strong word. Not that they're, you know, they're a little bit in error. They, they're, maybe they're not as good as they should be. That's not what this says. It says they're corrupt. Through deceitful desires. Your old nature continues to attack you with desires that are deceitful because they are corrupt and they're trying to, to paint, trying to paint themselves in a, in a, a glorious light. Paul says we're to put off the old and be renewed in the spirit of your minds that you might put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You have a responsibility. And I'll tell you, this is not a responsibility that you took care of one time in the past. We talk about being saved. Have you been saved? Yeah, but more importantly, I'm being saved right now. And one day in the future, I'm going to be saved. That's that verse 30 of Romans 8. Yes, I've been justified, and one day, friends, I'm going to be glorified. You're going to want to be there that day because you're not going to recognize me. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be even better than my mind thinks I am right now. And that's coming because there is another at work in me. Sister Epistle to Ephesians in Colossians chapter 3. Was our scripture reading this morning. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. How are you going to do that? You've got to decrease and he has to increase. Seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. You know what you were born with a mind set on? Things on the earth. You know what you were born again with the capacity to do? To set your mind on things above. You can't possibly go to an unbeliever and tell them this. Your first responsibility as an unbeliever is not to set your mind on things that are above. Your first responsibility as an unbeliever is to repent of your sin and to give your life and faith to Jesus Christ. That's your responsibility. And from there, these things become a reality, and you begin to be able to actually work on this in real time. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Same thing in verse 9 of Colossians 3 that we just read in Ephesians 4. Put off the old self and its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There it is. You decrease. He increases. You have put off the old self. That is the, the, the you that needs to decrease. And you've put on the new which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And if you are being renewed after the image of your creator, you are being molded and conformed into the shape of Jesus Christ. That means that he in your life is increasing and you are decreasing. That is the unending prescription for your life and for mine. All of this is the demand of the creator. And all of this is the way that we meet him on his terms. You must decrease. Your desires, your demands, self-satisfaction must be pushed aside and he must increase. That means that your life pursues his desires. Your life pursues his demands. Your life pursues his satisfaction. And friends, when, you, when that is the reality in your life, then you begin to know true satisfaction. You begin to know what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 4 as the peace that transcends understanding, being satisfied in him. As he increases and you decrease. There is a must ultimately most necessary reality in your life. And that is that you must be born again. And that in doing that, he must increase and you must decrease. Hope that you will not leave this place today the way that you came in. And for some of you, that means that you need to come to Jesus Christ on his terms in repentance and faith. I hope that you will not leave here again outside of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you, Lord, for the impact that it has. It, it seems to never be exhaustible. One book written one time and one age in the past and having eternal implication. Lord, we, are, we stand in awe of you, the author of this book and we stand petitioning you to give us grace that we might respond to it properly that we might cry out to you to give us the grace to put off the old self and to be renewed in the new self that is ours in Christ to be renewed in the spirit of our mind through the 
constant study of your word, not just knowing what it says, but submitting to it when it calls us to act. And very often submitting to you even when we don't understand why, but trusting that you are the all-knowing one and it is for our good and your glory. Lord, be honored by our time here today, by the response to this word about Christ. That you would strengthen your people, that you would save the unbelievers and make them your people. We pray it all in our sovereign Savior, Jesus' name. Amen.